You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your hosts, Chris Jennings and Dr. Mike Brazier. Today, we've got an exciting show. It's a recap, and it's the recap of the 2020-2021 season. And joining me on the show today, I've got my co-host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Mike, good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you as well, Chris. Also joining us is Dr. Tom Mormon, retired DU chief scientist. And that's kind of something that we're going to discuss about uh, as well as we get into the show. Um, just the fact that, you know, Dr. Mormon has stepped away. But Dr. Mormon, welcome back to the show. Hey, Chris. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me back, man. We're going to start this off and Mike, you can jump in anytime you want, but really, you know, we're going to start this off with, you know, the full overview of this season and a strange season it's been, you know, not even with, you know, the current global pandemic that, that, you know, kind of caused a catastrophic intro to the season, but all the way throughout. Um, but you know, we had, we dealt with weather. We dealt with, you know, everything from stale ducks to, uh, guessing at numbers. And, you know, it's really, really difficult for waterfowl managers as well as, you know, the boots on the ground, you know, waterfowl hunters throughout the country. So Mike, let's go ahead and start with you and just kind of hear, you know, a, how, you know, what you heard and how the overall season went from from kind of your perspective and from the perspectives of the waterfowl managers and people that you talk to throughout the season. Sure. And Chris, I'll start by saying the the podcast kind of role of, of my my job now has given me an opportunity that I really didn't have previously in terms of uh, having another reason to connect with periodically our our state and federal partners across the country. 
I worked for 13 years down along the Gulf Coast. And so I was in regular contact with people there in South Louisiana and Texas, Mississippi and Alabama. But that job didn't really require me to to speak with and interact with on a regular basis uh, folks from other parts of the country to get a gauge on how the, the migration was progressing, how hunting success was going, the type of things that people are hearing. So this has been exciting for me in, in, uh, you know, in, in that regard because I, I did, did have an opportunity to hear firsthand from some of the people that are in, in these states and whether it be uh, folks in the Pacific Northwest all the way over to New York with Sarah Fleming joining us for an episode, uh, Steve Quartz in Minnesota, and then all the way down to Louisiana and Arkansas, all places in between. So it was really neat in that regard. There's a lot to cover here. You know, it's kind of hard to summarize this. What what I think I'll do kind of big picture, and we can step back occasionally and revisit some of these things. And I'll, I'll say that the big take home for me, when I spoke with at least a dozen, maybe a dozen and a half people over the course of the of this podcast and hunting season, was that we there are some pretty consistent patterns. Certainly, once you get east of the Rockies, what happens kind of west of the Rockies depends on some different weather patterns over there. But even those were a bit similar, sort of in, in story to what we heard east of the Rockies, and that was a, a good teal season for those people that had that had water, had habitat. Uh, you know, we all, we look back to the summer uh, breeding season of last year and we knew the Dakotas were brimming. Wetlands there in the Dakotas were brimming and we expected a good hatch there. Certainly if some of those those species and blue wings were big beneficiaries of that and, and what we expected to happen did with regard to a good teal season. Some in certain places described it as the best teal season they can ever remember. A uh, personal story there is I did try to teal hunt in Mississippi, but we were, uh, I tried to hunt in a place that didn't have a whole lot of water. So it didn't have a whole lot of teal in, in response to that. Uh, then as we got into the regular hunting season, uh, obviously there's the, the whole part about non-residents not being able to get into Canada. And I know that's something that we want to talk about, but but then late October, we had a an unusually strong cold front that came through and created a fairly substantial early movement of birds. We heard that from a lot of, a lot of our partners in Missouri, Illinois. Uh, you heard it from some of your contacts up in the Dakotas and in the Great Lakes. We saw this early push of birds. It was actually too early for some people in Missouri. Their, some of their hunting seasons weren't yet open when some of those birds came through. So we saw this big initial push of birds and but then it's like somebody turned the faucet off. Everything got mild, temperatures moderated, and and it was relatively dry here in, in the south for a couple of, well, throughout much of the Midwest and uh, much of the eastern U.S. for a couple of months. And so that kind of held birds in a, in a, a rather stale pattern. And so I want to come back to that here in a minute with Tom and ask him to speak on that sort of from a physiological standpoint, what's going on there. But yeah, that was the dominant trend. Uh, once we got past October, things just became very stale. There were a few occasional high points that we heard from selected uh, guests. Uh, Andy Stetter down on the Texas coast put in a lot of work and they had a fair bit of success uh, on, on some days, but then I think other days they struggled. And you know, mild ten, uh, temperatures continued really through mid-January across much of the the uh, eastern U.S., and there are some statistics that we can kind of point to as we go through this, 
Um, and I, I don't want to get into all that stuff right now, but yeah, that was the dominant pattern. It's just stale birds got in this, in, in a situation where they, they didn't have to venture out and, uh, replenish their food reserves and all that kind of stuff. And there wasn't a whole lot of new habitat being put on the landscape as a result of, uh, as a consequence of us not having a whole lot of weather systems that put new, that brought a lot of rain, widespread rain, you know, to move ducks around. I saw that with some of the places I was trying to hunt, um, but or that I was trying to scout. So, you know, that was the big pattern. And I think, I think here I'll bring Tom in, uh, because we heard about that so much. We have stale birds. We have birds that just are not moving and, uh, you know, there's some around, but they're just, they're just not making themselves available to hunt. They're in a nocturnal pattern. And, and that was a very, very consistent message. Tom, I know you would have heard that you would have experienced that as well. So from a, from a science perspective, a, a physiology perspective, put some, put some understanding on that. What, what's going on with the birds that are causing them to do that? And why do they get in that type of pattern when we had the, the conditions that we did this year? Yeah, thanks, Mike. Um, so there's, there's a number of interacting factors. Um, you, you hit on some of them with the stale birds usually are a result of stale weather. Um, or maybe you could call it consistent weather. And this year, you know, it was a La Nina kind of a, um, a weather event. And when that happens, we get a split jet stream, get a southern jet and a more northern jet. And you get a lot of Pacific weather, uh, you know, just not the major Arctic cold front. You get sort of Pacific cold fronts, you know, moving from west to east versus north-south or northwest to southeast. So what ends up happening is from a bird's perspective, from a physiological perspective, mild weather uh, all the way up into the Midwest for the most part, uh, sometimes even up into Canada in December, as late as December and January, uh, birds don't have to move. They don't have to move because uh, they're able to meet their energy demands without going very far, without migrating far. There's open water and there's food. You're a duck. That's really all you need uh, to get through the course of the winter. In addition to uh, some other kinds of habitat to sort of roost on. So what we ended up seeing is, you know, birds could fatten up and they're primed to migrate. They're physiologically ready to migrate. They did migrate a short distance. I mean, there's parts of Canada obviously that are devoid of waterfowl right now. Um, from the far, far north. Um, most of Canada, in fact, is probably devoid of waterfowl by now. But those birds, when they say they hit the, uh, let's just say 36 to 38 degrees north, things really got stale. Weather-wise, storm events would come through. They weren't necessarily heavy rainmakers or heavy snowmakers. It was generally not cold enough to snow. Uh, the Great Lakes stayed open for the most part. So you have a situation like that, and if you're a duck, really all you have to do is migrate as far as you have to for the most for most species to find open water and food. And if nothing pushes you further, then it's your advantage to stay there because you're that much closer to the spring migration and breeding habitat. And that's pretty advantageous for birds to get there first, take out the best territories and all that sort of thing. So what we see in a year like this is, in fact, stale birds. Um, the birds that do show up 
uh, don't get stressed by weather. They don't get moved around. You know, it get real cold, make them moving around searching for food. Uh, in parts of, of the southern half of the continent where birds are really responsive to rain events, if you don't have heavy rain events, they don't go out and search for new habitat as much, and hence they become a lot less vulnerable to hunters. And ultimately what they end up doing is finding places where they're not disturbed very often, if at all, and then they sit. And then you see the nocturnal activity kick in because when it is dry, relatively speaking, most of the wetlands have hunters on and those that don't hold birds. And then when hunters get out of there, uh, you know, birds got about 12 hours of darkness and they've learned to take advantage of it. You see a lot of nocturnal foraging. We see that almost every year anyway, but in years like this, it's, it seems to be really prevalent because there's just less habitat on the ground in terms of natural wetlands, natural flooding, all those kinds of things that would make birds move around in any time of day to exploring habitat. You know, I think that's one of the consistent messages that I heard, you know, uh, like Mike hit on, you know, it was from East Coast to West Coast that, you know, there were long periods of really stale weather. And that really put hunters in a very difficult situation because, you know, the most consistent thing that I heard, the theme was, you know, these birds are night feeding and, and they're really, you know, that lack of weather, that lack of, I guess I should say need to move around during the day really pushed, um, put a lot of people in a tough situation as far as, you know, they're calling me and I'm getting emails saying, Hey, we've got, you know, thousands of ducks on our property, but they, take off when we go in in the morning and they don't come back until dark. And I saw a lot of things on social media, you know, Facebook, Instagram, where, where hunters were having this conversation and it really all kind of boiled down to that lack of weather systems that really force birds to have to do things. Um, and it sounds like, you know, that, that really kind of wraps up what a lot of people, um, you know, we're concerned with as the season rolled on. But the one question that I have for you was a major topic of discussion uh, going into the season. And I think is very unique that I have both of you on here to both kind of give your um, opinions on this and how, but we've always had, you know, come August, we've always had the BPOP survey, the May Pond Count survey. Um, we've always had this data set in front of waterfowl managers to look at. And then I would, you know, we would call you and we go through this whole process where, Hey, you know, you know, canvas backs are at this percentage and, and it made for great conversation. But this year we didn't have that, you know, with COVID canceling the survey. Uh, and this is the U S fish and wildlife services survey, by the way, I just want to stress, stress that I get a lot of questions about that, that, you know, do use duck counts? Like, well, we don't, we don't really do duck counts. And I think both of you can agree that that, that is a misconstrued message with the general public. Um, but how was, how was it so much different for you, Tom, going into with nearly 30 years of experience as a waterfowl manager going into a season without this information? Well, it was interesting. Um, I have the advantage of knowing lots of biologists all across the continent. And so I made phone calls and talked to them. As I think we've all heard by now, the Dakotas did okay in terms of duck production, maybe did really well. So they probably grew lots of blue wings, some gadwalls, some mallards, a handful of pintails. Um, but when you get, say, to the border, Canada was, again, pretty dry. And so what, what do you draw back from that in terms of how do you forecast what might have happened I think production this year was probably 
you know, just kind of middle of the road. It wasn't a bus by any stretch, but it also wasn't a boom year by any stretch. And so I don't think that that level of production would be something that would dramatically influence what hunters saw or did not see this year. Um, I think there were probably some young birds in the population based on the Dakotas. And then the birds out of Canada didn't probably do as well. So as we know, latitudinally, the further south you get, uh, it gets harder and harder to shoot ducks because the younger birds tend to get uh, get harvested along the way a little bit disproportionately. I think at the end of the day, this production year was probably pretty average. Uh, Canada probably slipped a bit. The Dakotas probably bumped up a bit. I don't think it was something that hunters would have noticed dramatic, dramatic changes in terms of what they were seeing arriving over their decoys. I think that was much more driven by this oddball weather year. You know, I, I feel like after all these years, I keep referring to oddball weather years, but in these past 15 or 20 years, man, there's been a lot of weird years. There's been some really, really arctically cold years. And then there have been these kind of years like we had this year that are just stale. And I think that is what drove distribution pretty heavily, influenced distribution pretty heavily this year. Tom, I'll add a few things to the the discussion about what production might have been this year, because I actually was trying to do a few channel checks on what folks might have been seeing in the field. Uh, I had had an opportunity to hear from a couple of people associated with some of these winter banding projects. And what I heard, and again, those projects are mainly targeting mallards. uh, And what I heard from a couple of those was a a preponderance of adults in what they were catching, which would, would, would tell you that maybe the production was, uh, was pretty low for mallards. I think that's kind of consistent with what you're saying. It might've been, might've been average. I might've even, might even say it was a little bit on the low side this year. Again, it's hard to draw definitive conclusions without a lot of data. We're talking about just some anecdotal observations here. Uh, the other thing that I'll I'll say is uh, Matt Kaminsky out in California shared with me because he uh, he takes every opportunity to get out and chase birds and he I know pays close attention to the the age of the birds that he harvests and he's one that would it's going to be very selective trying to harvest the um, the the brightest the most uh, the most ornate of the drakes in the flock and he was telling me that. Among some of their, uh, the, the birds that he was shooting, a lot of those are going to be derived from Alaska. Uh, they had a fair number of juveniles in there uh, uh, among among the birds that they harvested. So, it, again, you get some variation regionally uh, across the continent where these birds are sourced, and there's going to be variation across the different species as well. But I would agree with you in that the Dakotas probably did well. I think uh, Canada for some species probably, I would I would be willing to bet a bit below average, but we'll see. We'll get some indication once age ratio data come out, and I guess that probably won't be until later this year. But, uh, it, yeah, interesting. I think you made a good point. Um, and, and hunters, you know, our podcast reaches hunters all across the continent. And so we should be, you know, when I say Canada was really dry, that mainly is going to affect uh, Central Flyway and Mississippi Flyway hunters probably disproportionately than the Atlantic Flyway 
you know, they get birds out of uh, Atlantic Canada, northern or eastern Canada. Um, I haven't actually heard any reports over there in terms of age ratios or anything like that. But then you also speak to Alaska. Well, both Alaska and eastern Canada tend to be more consistent, um, more stable in terms of their wetland conditions, not real prone to droughts or floods or anything like that. And so what you see is this consistent level of production, which is why somebody like Matt Kaminsky might see year in, year out, more younger young birds in his uh, harvest. Then you step over in the central flyway, city flyway, where we're a little bit more dependent upon prairie production. If the prairies get dry, as they were, we know they were in Canada last spring, then, yeah, we're going to be seeing a population of birds that's going to have preponderance of adults and you know if we know anything about ducks adult birds are in fact harder to kill uh, they've been down this road before they're they learn uh, that would also explain why you see lots more nocturnal foraging because they've learned to do that all those kinds of things sort of fly together so interesting stuff absolutely and i think you know and and this is just kind of bring it back to the beginning of the season as well you know, one thing that we that Mike and I actually did an episode earlier in season three to kind of debunk this, you know, expectation or or myth, possibly. And and I think before the season kicked off, I think people duck hunters throughout the country were kind of looking up and like, you know, there's no U.S. hunters going to Canada. And immediately I started seeing on social media like, oh, there's going to be so many more ducks. <laughs> and, you know, Mike and I had this conversation like yeah, I don't think we can quite jump, jump out on a ledge here and say yes, you know, and, and, you know, Mike was even a little hesitant to say you know, no, because that information and that data is so hard to come by. But also, you know, Mike, you can kind of speak to this, um, cause you ran the numbers with this. Um, but, you know, hunters aren't necessarily going to see if you're hunting in one little corner of Iowa or, you know, one little corner of Pennsylvania, you're not going to notice a, you know, 70% increase in ducks because you may not be seeing them. So kind of explain that and how, and kind of, we're just kind of recap that conversation as well. No, Chris, that's a good point. And that was, that was one of the more exciting things to uh, speculate about as there's no other way to say it really, when we're trying to talk about what will be the effect of no, uh, essentially no non-resident hunters in Canada. Uh, there's a great deal of speculation that goes on there. And now, as you mentioned, we did pull some of the numbers last year whenever we were having that conversation to look at exactly how much harvest, duck harvest, are, are, are non-residents, largely Americans, responsible for in Canada on an annual basis anyway. And it's not that much in the grand scheme of things when you look across that broad expanse of, of the uh, production areas because you got to remember some of those birds that are being harvested out of the, even though they're largely harvested in the prairies, they're going to be produced up in the boreal forest and uh, areas to the north. Annually, non-resident duck harvest in Canada here over the past 20 years has only been about 330,000 uh, ducks. So not a great deal. And in terms of the number of waterfowl hunters, I think the average number of non-residents in Canada over that same time period is like 20,000 a year. So, you know, 20,000 um, hunters is, okay, that's an appreciable number. Spread across a large landscape like Prairie Canada, 
you might begin to wonder whether you would notice a difference uh, in that and in terms of either seeing people or the influence of those people and that pressure on on birds but in terms and i'll get to that here in a minute but in terms of the the lack of harvest by non-resident hunters and whether that would translate into a noticeable increase in the number of birds coming into the u.s no i think i think people's experiences are going to kind of support that. At the time, we said any variation in productivity from a year-to-year basis is going to swamp one way or another any kind of noticeable difference that one would have, that would have resulted from a lack of duck harvest as a result of non-residents in Canada. What I will say is that our conversations with Scott Stevens and Pat Kehoe as they went through their hunting season was that they definitely noticed the lack of non-resident hunters. That seems like an obvious statement. Uh, but uh, it was it definitely was very noticeable to them. The other thing that Pat said he noticed, we were not sure how this was going to play out. I think I actually speculated there might not be any effect on bird behaviors as a result of that lack of pressure or reduced pressure. But Pat did say that from his perspective, again, this is anecdotal, from his perspective, he did think that the birds were responding a bit differently, uh, maybe not as uh, not as flighty, as they as they were in years past and and so then the other part of that that conversation that we were having in late summer was that oh well lack of pressure is going to allow those birds to stay north of the border longer and i think at the time we said yeah that might be true but uh, actually just having this conversation with pat and said uh, that might be true but if we get a strong cold front that changes everything. That's going to be the dominant factor that's going to influence what these birds do. And then lo and behold, about two weeks later, we got that very thing uh, where we had that real strong cold front come down through the prairies of Canada and uh, pushed a lot of those birds, uh, stimulated a lot of those birds to to get out of the prairies and come in uh, prairies of Canada and start moving south. So that was, it was really neat to be able to discuss that, see how it unfolded. Now, we don't have any measurements on that from a data perspective. But uh, nevertheless, that was particularly interesting. Yeah, and and, and Tom, I yeah, I want to take this opportunity just kind of to bring up something that you've mentioned and you know off the podcast that I've heard you say that was really eye opening um, to me. That you know you're seeing these videos, or people all across the country are seeing these videos on social media. Um, an example would be uh, Long Point, where you know, it's the first week, second week of January, and you're seeing these large concentrations of waterfowl in these really, you know, far northern reaches of the flyway. I mean, uh, our uh, migration editor for the Great Lakes, Jay Anglin, he joined me on the show multiple times and was talking like, hey, man, like, like that area up around Harsons Island is loaded with birds, you know, the St. Mary's River, um, these, these areas that should these birds should be out of there. Um, kind of speak to some of those examples that you saw, Tom, and, and you know, what, how that kind of impacted you, not just as a waterfowl manager, but as a duck hunter in, you know, Mississippi, where, you know, you're going the next morning and you're seeing these massive concentrations of birds stacked up up north. In one way, it was really interesting to see the birds adapt to, to those kinds of conditions. But as a duck hunter, it's pretty frustrating. Uh, so the, the video that, that we're, referencing right at this moment is north of Lake Erie, Long Point's on Lake Erie, uh, the northern side of Lake Erie, Ontario. Uh, the, the estimate was, I don't know, 10, 15,000 mallards and black ducks that were 
staying up there and they were feeding in harvested cornfields, way spring. And then they had plenty of open water, including Lake Erie, to sit around and loaf. And so they didn't really move. And at least not, and this was, this hasn't been long ago. I mean, it was in mid January that that video surfaced. Uh, other reports you hear, you hear about these things really across the Midwest and, uh, over in the central flyway. Um, you know, Mike, I'm going to, I'm going to cheat a little bit since you sent me some information about Kansas midwinter survey. Over a million snow geese in Kansas, uh, in January is not, uh, what we would typically expect to see. Uh, mallard numbers are up a bit there. Um, there were mallards and concentrations of mallards, you know, well into places like Wisconsin, Ohio, Illinois, well into January. And that is not typical. I mean, I actually grew up in Ohio, got my duck hunting teeth in Ohio. And in a normal year, it used to be that we would rarely get to hunt past Thanksgiving. Uh, now, you know, it's open water, it's still open water. So um, those birds just don't have to move, right? They've got adequate foraging resources in the form of waste grain. They've got open water and wetlands, which provides them access to whatever natural foods grew during the year, wild millets, tank grass, and all those kinds of things are up there as well. They just don't have to move. And it's not cold and unless we get, uh, you know, that big Arctic blast, um, good strong arctic cold front with ultimately what it takes is ice and snow cover to push especially mallards and black ducks uh, out of those kinds of places that just didn't happen so what's the impact on someone like me who duck hunts in mississippi predominantly Uh, our our harvest aeration in mississippi is roughly um, you know i'm gonna ballpark it here roughly 25 to 30 percent of Great Lakes-based production, and the remainder comes out of the prairie production. And so in a situation like that, if you think about all those birds sitting up there in the Great Lakes, and a lot of birds sitting over in the you know the western part of the Great Lakes, the prairie production kind of areas, man, we're toast. We didn't have them. And Mississippi's own winter survey, uh, you know, they fly, I think it's bi-weekly uh, for, during the course of duck season. And generally speaking, mallard numbers were down 50 to 60 percent places that I hunt. So that tells you right there that we were struggling. In fact, we struggled mightily. It was actually in terms of duck harvest for me personally, my worst duck season ever. <laughs> so that tells you something. I've been hunting a long time since the mid 70s. Man, it was just a challenge. And I think the birds were just scattered far and wide across a whole bunch of latitude and a whole bunch of longitude. And we didn't get, as we've already talked about, we didn't get that north-south weather cold front pattern to make a move. And as a consequence, we struggled. We had good camp life. That you know, ate well, <laughs> but we didn't kill many ducks. And, you know, for me, on a personal note, that was really disappointing because I got a really young dog a two-year-old dog, and, you know, I was hoping this year was going to be his year to put it all together and make everything start to click, duck, gun goes boom, duck falls out of the sky. That was going to start in Canada, but we didn't get to go, so I had my fingers crossed that maybe things would work out down here, and boy, it just didn't. So, we're going to continue to work the dog, 
and sooner or later we're going to have a good duck season with <laughs> Tom, I'll, I'll chime in here with a few other things related to that. You talked about snow cover. You talked about some of the ice, and, and you also talked about some of the data that we pulled together here, some graphics. That's one of the neat things about kind of – talking about and observing these things in this era is that there's all sorts of online information and it's, it's readily available in different graphics. And one of the things that I pulled together is really it's what you mentioned, snow cover. We didn't have a whole lot of snow cover across the, uh, across the, the upper Midwest, the Great Plains. And so you can do this on a daily basis or biweekly basis. And you can look through November and, and through the end of November and then into December uh, mid-December, there was a little bit of snow fell across the Midwest, not much. But then, uh, and then in January, I think we started to get some snow cover that, that persisted for a little while. But what snow that did fall, uh, certainly on the U.S. side of the prairies and in, into the Midwest, it wasn't very much and it did not stick around very long. So you had like November and December where it, virtually no snow on the landscape at a at a at a level and length of time that would that would be of any consequence to the species of waterfowl for which that really matters. And so there's also the the Great Lakes that you referenced and the lack of ice cover on on those uh, on, on those lakes. The pattern there was consistent across all five of those lakes and, and as well as Lake St. Clair. Up through the second or third week of January ice coverage on each of those lakes was well, well below uh, the average over the recent, over recent 50 years. Uh, there's a lot of graphics that you can, that you can find to show you, uh, to show you exactly where that ice cover was relative to the, to the long-term average. Now, the cold that moved in in late January rapidly changed that. Um, so, you know, that's, perhaps a little bit too late for a lot of us at some of the more southern latitudes. Um, and I also mentioned how it was kind of dry throughout much of the south and, and midwest, and you can look at stream gauges, and it shows that as well. Uh, just what rain did fall, it wasn't enough to keep those river levels up up high enough to do a lot of overbank stream flooding. And Chris, I'm going to turn here to you in a minute and get your thoughts on some of that, having hunted in Arkansas and just get your perspective on, on what the lack of overbank flooding you might have seen. But, you know, the other thing that I will say is that this, the effects of all of these, these weather metrics that we're talking about here were not exclusive to ducks. They also affected geese, uh, Canada geese most notably. A lot of the white fronts and snows seem to have moved down in some of their typical patterns. But Canada geese are, are hanging out at those northern latitudes as long as they can. I was talking to a friend from Montana the other day or earlier this week, and he was saying they still have a ton of Canada geese in Montana that are that uh, that roost on the on the rivers and then go out and feed in these uh, harvested cornfields. And that pattern is going to be true in some of the other northern states. Uh, those Canada geese are are toughing it out, uh, and it takes a lot of snow and. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. 
Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. In cold weather to drive those, those hardy things out. Chris, with regard to that overbank flooding, I wanted to, did you, I know you hunt in Arkansas. Did you notice that? Did you, the lack of that kind of flooding, uh, was that a topic of conversation in Arkansas? Absolutely. And I think um, when when it, you're going into and you know it's a pretty dry year, I think the chatter throughout Arkansas for some people, uh, especially the guys who, who hunt, you know, flooded rice fields, you know, that's that's one of the predominant, you know, setups or situations for hunters there in Arkansas. Um, other than, you know, the opera, when the opportunity comes up for these things to flood, uh, these rivers to flood out and provide additional habitat. But I think hunters go into the season thinking, oh man, you know, it's dry. So, you know, we've got the only habitat in town. And I think that's a misconception and one that was really brought to light um, by Luke Naylor, who joined us on the show several times. He's the Arkansas Game and Fish Waterfowl Program Coordinator. Um, and, and Luke just reiterates the message that I think a lot of Arkansas hunters, um, and this probably goes for Mississippi and North Louisiana as well, that that landscape level water, the landscape level habitat is really what draws, um, significant mallard numbers and, and other duck species as well. But that's really a draw for the ducks to come to Arkansas and, we just never got it. I mean, before the season, I mean, I think looking at some of your charts that you put together, Mike, you're showing like stream gauge uh, levels and those things shot up, you know, the White River, the Cache, these, you know, historical waterfowling locations, uh, which provide an abundance of public land and habitat for ducks. Um, but they shot up in September and everyone's like, oh yeah, here we go. You know, all right, this is great. And by the, you know, by the end of October, we're two weeks away from the season and it's dry as a bone. And, and it really impacted, um, the, the sheer number. And this is not necessarily my, you know, what I saw. Um, but what Luke Naylor's reporting from Arkansas Game and Fish is, is it really impacted that the number of ducks that, that showed up in the state in conjunction with you know, my analysis, I'm looking at all your guys' data and hearing, you know, the way that you guys break down, even the physiology of ducks. And, and you know, people ask me all the time, and I'm not a waterfowl scientist. You know, I'm not a waterfowl manager. I'm just I'm just another duck hunter. But, you know, people ask me and they say, you know, where are the ducks? And I said, man, it's 55 degrees in Nebraska. 
in January. I said, I, I, could, I don't know exactly where the ducks are. I said, but I know that those ducks have a will to survive that exceeds, you know, our passion for waterfowl hunting, let's say that. And they're going to stay as far north. And, and Arkansas was a very good example. I mean, the numbers showed um, significantly down, you know, some of the early in the early survey showed some one of the lowest um, mallard counts, you know, on record that, you know, Luke in, you know, as they do these surveys, I mean, that he's not, this is not something that people can look at and be like, Oh, you know, they're not trying to look, not trying to tell the truth. Like Luke is just providing the data here. And I think that gave the podcast some real credibility um, and some good examples of why people's duck seasons are slow. I mean, a very good personal ex- story is about four days after Christmas, three days after Christmas, I texted a guy who hunts uh, property adjacent to ours. And I said, Hey, how are you guys doing? And he texts me back. He's like, it's the end of December in Arkansas. We just shot two blue wings and a Canada wow. goose. Wow. And I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. <laughs> he's like, yeah, he's like, none of this makes sense right now. So th- I guess that yeah. really goes to show, um, you know, the difficulties that people did have. But by, by all means, I do want to, you know, there's a little caveat here. And I think both of you would agree. There are people out there who had good duck season. Absolutely. You know, um, and I don't know if you guys can maybe provide some examples of that, that, you know, you heard people, Hey, I had a good duck season and maybe here's why, you know, because maybe they're in a little bit Northern latitude or even some Southern latitudes who actually shot some ducks for specific reasons. Chris, I'll go first with that. I do have some thoughts and, and I'll actually reference some of the midwinter survey data that, that we pulled together here. And an important caveat here before we reference any of this midwinter survey data is that you kind of got to recognize it, that especially the key thing to recognize is that it's a snapshot in time. Yeah, that's very important. The, all, the other thing to remember is that these states conduct these surveys differently. So the methods aren't necessarily comparable. Even the spatial scale within a given state aren't necessarily comparable. But you can look at departures from long-term average within a given state and kind of compare those relative departures across states to give you maybe an idea of, of what was going on and um, – you know, so I guess to to get to your point here, Chris, about some pla- places and people that that had really good seasons, some of the data here does suggest, not surprisingly, abundances were lower than normal in some of the more southern states. Maybe the mid latitudes would have been a, a disproportionately larger beneficiary of of the weather patterns and what we saw. This year, um, I'll give you an example here. And then the numbers, absolute numbers aren't necessarily impressive. But if you look at sort of departures from average from Missouri example in early January, they had uh, they they counted over 400,000 mallards, which was up about a third from their 20 year average. Uh, if you go to what was it, Tom, you mentioned Kansas and they were they had about 400 uh, had about 370,000 mallards which was also up 30% from there from about a recent 10 year average uh, then you kind of contrast that with Texas uh, Texas is big state we had an extensive conversation with Kevin Cry about all the different things that are happening with Texas waterfowl and waterfowl habitats their statewide total in terms of total ducks was down 38% from a 23 or 24 year average uh, if you look at the coast, uh, if you look at dabbling ducks on the coast of Texas, they were down 80% from that same, that 24-year uh, time period, that long-term average. So you get some idea that, yeah, the data are kind of bearing out what we thought was operating at a large scale. But with that said, I mentioned Andy Stetter early, 
early on and and he is he and some of his buddies hunted the texas coast hard all year long and they had a lot of good success i can't tell i can't exactly tell you what there's their uh, recipe to success was but they were successful i can also tell you that we have uh, we know some folks in missouri that say yeah we had it was tough at times but on balance when you look at the numbers we had our best season ever I can then tell you about somebody, a, a waterfowl biologist just across the river in Illinois who said, I had the worst season ever <laughs> in my 20 years <laughs> of hunting in Illinois. Um, now I don't have any insight, personal insight from people that would have hunted in some of the other sort of Midwestern or the, the Great Plains states, uh, Oklahoma, uh, Kansas, uh, but I don't have any personal stories of that other than to say after speaking with some of the waterfowl biologists in many of these states, they will tell me the same thing. There was extreme variation in each of their states. There are some places and sometimes that did really well. There are other places and other times where nobody did well. Uh, and then there's just, there's some other, other uh, instances that did well none of the time. So there was the good the bad and the in-between, and it, I don't know, it just felt like there was some real extreme variation both within states, uh, within, you know, across regions within states, uh, across time within the same region within a state, and then certainly across states, just extreme variation this year driven by a lot of different things. So, Tom, I don't know if you have any examples of folks that you've talked to that uh, that did well. Uh, well, the one thing, maybe, maybe you've spoken with some folks out in California. Let's uh, kind of talk to some, talk about some of what might've happened west of the Rockies. If you have any examples there, I think they might've had a decent season. Yeah. Um, Pacific flyway hunters for the most part seem like they did. Okay. California folks that we have talked to had great years. Um, but it's a bit of a different animal. Right? We talked about that Alaska production and they shoot, uh, in parts of California that I'm talking about, they shoot a lot of green-winged teal, a lot of ring-neck duck, and both of those birds seem to have done really well. It was predominantly probably because of boreal production and Alaska production. Um, we will flip over to the East Coast, and some folks did really well. Again, um, you know, I can't speak to how consistently. I'm sure there were folks that struggled over on. You know, even in California, there were probably folks that struggled. That speaks to the variability. You know, we heard a lot of uh, disappointment from coastal Gulf Coast hunters. Alternatively, as you noted, pointed out a couple of folks that had great years. I know a couple of folks in Louisiana, one in southwestern, one in southeastern, that had banner years. And they tend to have really great habitat. They invest a lot in management. And they did great. Um, but I also know hunters who invested a heck of a lot in management and suffered miserably through a tough year. So it's, it becomes really hard to explain. And ultimately, I think you have to you know, you step back from the local and the regional scale more to the continental scale. And you look at these big trends that are going on, particularly with the weather. You know, I, I always hate to fall back consistently on the weather, but that's the fact. And that's what drives in a lot of ways, that's what drives winter waterfowl distribution. It's not the only thing, but it's a big one. You get a year like this when it's mild, those birds aren't pushed. Folks are going to, some folks will struggle, some folks will do well. It's going to be real variable. I think that's the, that's the summation 
Um, a couple of things also I wanted to point out when we were talking about, you know, those birds that linger in the, in the mid latitudes and come December, late December, day length starts to increase. And so what ends up happening is they become hormonally primed in a physiological sense to start to, to get primed to migrate north. So you can, can imagine how hard and what kind of event it would take to push a duck that's primed to start thinking, uh, if you could say ducks think, uh, to, to move north. You know, they're primed to, by day length increasing, hormones are changing. Uh, they're getting interested in moving north to go breed. And if you don't get some kind of major winter weather to push them, then they're not moving. They're going to be wanting to drift north, if anything. So that's the kind of things we encounter in years like this that just make it tough for some folks. And Tom, the other thing about those birds, uh, you talked about once they get into late December and then on over into January, the birds that are up there in the uh, more northern latitude states, if they're able to kind of hang on up there uh, to that point, then they're almost home free in terms of disturbance. You know, they're not being hunted anymore. And so that's all the more reason for them to be happy up there as long as they can. Um, so I, I know that is not a that's certainly not a non-trivial component of what uh, of what it is that you're talking about. The it probably makes it even requires even a even more of a substantial um, weather event or stressful event to get them to move out of there once they reach that point and there's no disturbance and still able to manage things energetically. You know, we keep speaking to how weird this year was. I think Chris, you mentioned somebody shot some blue winged teal in Arkansas, which is you know it. In, in the Mississippi Valley, it's really unusual to have teal, uh, blueing teal, uh, that time of year. One of the things I noticed this year, and it wasn't just duck, um, but I noticed a lot of western species spraying over here. Uh, cinnamon teal sightings were were higher than normal, let's just put it that way. You know, you know I see here about one or two around, and I heard people seeing uh, cinnamon teal, uh, you know, probably, probably 10 or 12 incidences. That's unusual. Um, and then I, you know, I also do some birding and there were lots of Western vagrants that were over here, birds that shouldn't be over here. Doesn't matter what species they are. The point is that the split jet stream with its west to east flow seems to have changed migration for lots of species. And some of them drifted west instead of drifting south like they normally do. I'm sorry, drifted east instead of South like they normally do for the West. So just an interesting observation and makes it yet an even stranger year in terms of what we just witnessed. Like you mentioned, you really have to look at it from a continental perspective. And, and I think that's a good example that you're seeing other bird species, you know, that, that shifted east. And that just kind of, you know, it's something that a lot of duck hunters probably aren't really looking at or looking for, but it would also be a pretty good um, pretty good way to judge what was going on. And I think the overall recap was just uh, inconsistent and lack of weather, um, I think would be a good way to put it. Or in non-scientific terms, it was 55 degrees in Nebraska. I prefer that one yeah. Uh, yeah. for the guys that I hunt with. <laughs> We've just had about an hour conversation about a single year and how variable these migratory bird movements are across the continent. And while we as as hunters 
it, it can be frustrating at times because the birds aren't where they were 10 years ago or weren't where they were last year or uh, whatever the case may be that's causing a frustrating season for us. That's also part of the fascination of these birds. And we can look at greater white-fronted geese as an example of a species that is, its population is growing, its range is expanding. There are some shifts in that distribution. We've, uh, some of the data will show. But those birds, those migratory birds are providing additional hunting opportunities for other people throughout different parts of the country. They didn't have them 10 or 15 years ago. And so all of this is so, uh, in some respects, frustrating. For some of us and others, it's incredibly rewarding and fascinating to study and to interact with and to try to understand what's going on and just think about how boring our lives as biologists would be if we were just talking about the movements of deer and turkeys on a 10, on a 5 or 10 square mile area to kind of throw up, <laughs> throw some, uh, <laughs> some fun uh, words out there to some of our colleagues in those fields. So, uh, no, that, that I just I always kind of like to point that out that they're both fascinating, frustrating, challenging, and just immensely rewarding to studies. These migratory birds that respond to so many different factors across such broad landscapes. Yeah, that is, that is a good point, Mike. And, you know, that's, and I just want just to go on record to say that, you know, Chris Jennings did not take a shot <laughs> at uh, other, <laughs> other biologists and species managers throughout the country. You can put that on Dr. Mike <laughs> Brazier. His email is, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, you know, as we roll on here, and I think uh, it's important that we do discuss this because um, it's something that is, has been a crucial part of Ducks Unlimited. Um, and and as part of you know our transition moving forward but also reflecting and and but i just want to bring up the the fact that you know dr tom mormon you know retired at the end of this year um at the end of 2020 and tom we've got a great opportunity here having you on the podcast to really you know get your you know i guess i should say your perspectives looking back and also your perspectives looking forward. And I know Mike probably had a couple questions for you as well. Um, but first of all, I want to congratulate you on your retirement. Uh, it was unfortunate that it was during a bad duck season. So that is a little bit of a, uh, a, a bad deal there. But, you know, kind of share your experience with DU and, and let our audience know how long you've been with DU, what, what you did. And then, you know, as moving forward, you know, what you're also still going to be contribute to the organization. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Uh, appreciate that. I uh, started with DU in 1991 as a regional biologist based in our southern region, uh, which is uh, Ridgeland, Mississippi, essentially Jackson, Mississippi. At the time, um, we did not have a large staff. So in the office at that time, there were just two biologists. My responsibilities were to work with state and federal agencies at that time, I think I had somewhere in the neighborhood of 16 or 17 states, all the way up to the Great Lakes and over to Texas and down to Florida. And so that was that was a really fun job. Uh, got to know a lot of people, got to see a lot of really neat habitat. Um, about, oh, I don't know, 97 or so, I uh, moved back over into uh what was called a director of conservation planning, but basically it was a, a conservation planning and science position, again, based in the regional office out of the, in the South. And we have that position exists in all four of our offices in the United States. 
Uh, there are comparable positions in Canada and in Mexico. And so got to work with a really, really great bunch of waterfowl scientists for a long time. Um, that was the bulk of my career, actually, uh, working with those folks um, across the continent. Much has changed in DU and in waterfowl conservation. You know, when I started with DU, uh, the North American Waterfowl Management Plan became uh, a reality in 1986, but implementation was slow to start until the North American Wetlands Conservation Act provided some funding. Uh, I think that was about 1991 or so. Uh, along came also a farm bill. Um, that changed the face of the earth with its conservation titles. Uh, I think that happened in the mid-80s. And so, again, those programs didn't really hit their stride until the early 90s. So we saw a lot of landscape change, um, some, for the, some for the benefit of waterfowl. When you talk about things like CRP, uh, Conservation Reserve Program, that put a bunch of grass back on the prairies for a while. Um, I've been here long enough to see much of that CRP go back into crop production, unfortunately. Um, so it gives you a sense that our job is never done, right? We, we have these landscapes that are working. They're working landscapes. They're living, breathing sort of organisms. And we can't ever stop monitoring them, evaluating them, doing the science to understand how birds interact with them. And that has to happen across the continent because it was, we just talked about these birds are capable in most years of moving vast distances back and forth across the continent. Um, so I've seen a lot of change in that respect. Um, I've seen our science improve dramatically. Uh, you know, I hope that I had maybe a, a little finger in that effort. Um, Part of that was related to the North American Waterfowl Management Plan, the development of habitat joint ventures, and pretty explicit conservation planning that set actual goals based on the physiology of waterfowl or pair densities and pair requirements of waterfowl in production areas. So we brought the biology and the science to bear on the conservation landscape planning. And to this day, we still have a lot of work to do. Um, in most of the continent, wetland loss has far exceeded what we have been able to restore or protect. Uh, so it's not a, we're done now. And I don't think that'll ever be the case, actually, because, as I mentioned earlier, these things are, are working landscapes. And there's always going to be changes, always going to be things that we didn't see coming. And we have to adapt and make sure that we're able to these waterfowl populations indefinitely. So those are the kinds of things, you know, I guess over 30 years that I've come to learn, um, appreciate, and understand that this is a pretty complex, a complex group of birds moving across the continent that leads to some pretty complex challenges in terms of conservation. But thanks to a whole bunch of dedicated professionals, and a whole bunch of dedicated waterfowl hunters who buy duck stamps and hunting licenses were able to keep this thing alive well. Uh, I hope in the future we can maintain or increase the number of waterfowl hunters uh, indefinitely. Um, they are the critical supporter. If we lose them or we lose a critical mass of them, 
and the people who value waterfowl suddenly become a pretty small group of folks who probably can't sustain the enterprise as we see it right now. Tom, I wanted to follow up and also just kind of share some perspectives and thanks from from my my seat here. You, I've been with Ducks Unlimited 15 plus years now. You have been my supervisor within Ducks Unlimited for about 13 of, of that. Uh, certainly appreciate that. And you've also been a, a mentor of mine relative to my, my career development. So I also thank you for that. You've been one of the, uh, if not the most staunch champion of uh, of the application of science within Ducks Unlimited. So don't sell yourself short in saying you hope you had a small finger on, on the, the importance of and the way science has been applied within this organization. You've been a champion from the start. And I appreciate that. And I know, uh, I hope everyone else does as, as well. As a matter of fact, I know, I know they do. But I, I wanted to take this opportunity to, to get your opinion on the importance of science and our scientific information. You know, science, as we've had discussions many times, science itself does not make a decision. Science becomes critical in how we think about problems and the decisions that we make uh, to address those. So, Tom, from your perspective, what has been the, the influence, and we might even say the legacy of our commitment to science within Ducks Unlimited and the way we do our habitat conservation business? That is a great question. And for folks who, who maybe their career path wasn't science, um, in waterfowl management and in wildlife management in general, we actually borrowed from the business world a management concept, and it's called adaptive resource management. It's a big fancy name, but basically what it is, um, essentially, if you sort of picture a, a triangle, at the top of the triangle, let's just say, is program implementation, where we're going out on the landscape and doing things, doing habitat treatments for birds at the largest scales that we're capable of doing them. Then you step down and you say, well, we've done all this work. Now let's evaluate our results. And... So we do lots of assessment, lots of research, lots of science to evaluate our results. Um, and then what that information does is loops back to inform our planning for future landscape uh, conservation treatments. And so you get this, what we would call an adaptive loop. Basically, it's a feedback system. And so you plan, you plan your conservation program. You go out on the landscape with all of our great staff and all of our great partners and with the funding support of, of lots of duck hunters. And we go and do landscape conservation. We purchase conservation easements. We restore wetlands, so on and so forth. And then we evaluate that work and say, hey, did this approach work? Did this specific technique work? Um, one of the biggest, and I didn't have anything to do with this particular project, but the habitat assessment in Prairie Canada, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, probably the biggest waterfowl research, what is the biggest waterfowl research project ever undertaken? Uh, man, did they, they do some great work and man, did our profession and learn a great deal. A number of conservation treatments were abandoned uh, because they weren't as efficient as we assumed they might be. New conservation treatments were developed because of that. 
And so it all comes down to this adaptive approach, this plan, implement, evaluate, and learn something, feed that back to the planning and adjust your programs on the landscape. And over, you know, many iterations, you start to really have a finely tuned machine where you're really confident that you're doing the right management action to benefit waterfowl at the biggest scale that we can afford to operate. Ultimately, then it becomes a scale issue and a resource funding issue. How much can we bring to bear on these landscapes? Somewhere like the prairies where there's 300 million acres of of possible uh, habitat. Uh, The other thing I would tell you is I watched in my career path is the development of geospatial data and geographical information systems to manage and analyze that data. And so now with all the information that we just talked about that we're developing in this adaptive sense, we can also target it spatially. And so while you may have a 300 million acre landscape, the reality is is there's about 30 or 40 million acres that, man, if we could just secure that in perpetuity, we would be rocking and doing some really great things. Now, just 30 or 40 million acres, well, yeah, that's, that's a big step, particularly when it's private land and ranching agriculture. And so you have to find ways to work with those producers and all those kinds of things. That's it, Mike. It's the adaptive approach. It's the iterative nature of the work. We learn, we refine the program, and we go out there and get it done, and we continue to evaluate it. And until such time as we're confident that, man, we got this thing razor sharp. Tom, I have a follow-up question for you, and then, then I'll kick it back to Chris. This is an exciting time for Ducks Unlimited, uh, and that's not connected to your retirement at all. I want to make sure people understand no, where I'm going. I actually here. don't blame you. Yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> no, this is an exciting time for Ducks Unlimited organizationally. Uh, I, I know our CEO, Adam Putnam. Uh, has spoken about this pretty much every any time we we are speaking with with our volunteers, our members. I had an opportunity the other day to other the other day to speak with uh, some of our volunteers and, and members in Wisconsin, and this was one of the topics that that we spoke about is the fact that we are trying to recognizing some of the things that you said, Tom, about. Uh, a decline in the number of waterfowl hunters, our most ardent supporters for uh, over a hundred years as a waterfowl management community. Those numbers are declining a bit. That's very concerning. And, and so we're, we're also being more aware of some of the secondary benefits that we've always been providing through our wetland conservation efforts, these ecosystem services and sticking with this science theme as we as we go forward with ecosystem services and leveraging that to grow our partnership, to grow our conservation delivery, with keeping waterfowl as our mission, as our organizational true north, I want to get your thoughts on, on the, the importance of continuing this commitment to science within that realm as well, the way we are go- uh, going to uh, scientifically learn about water quality benefits, storm surge benefits, all of those types of secondary benefits, ecosystem services benefits, and then how science is going to continue to be an important part of the way we do business. I know that you have been um, 
responsible in many ways for us having a, a new ecosystem services scientist, Dr. Ellen Herbert here on staff, and she is doing tremendous work with within that program. So just speak about that a little bit, if you could, in terms of um, science, new science that we are going to be bringing to Ducks Unlimited, not replacing our, our focus on waterfowl science at all, but expanding our science, and we could even get into ag sciences as well. We're talking about working landscapes, but I think that's from a looking forward standpoint, that's what's particularly exciting to me, and I wanted to get your thoughts on on that as well. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Um, this this is a really complicated enterprise that we that we are in, and waterfowl hunters will always be the core in driving what we do and why we do it. They're the people who value uh, what we do the most. They value the birds. However, you heard me talk earlier about scale, and the challenge that is before us is there are not enough waterfowl hunters nor enough financial resources to secure these landscapes that are so important to birds, so important to waterfowl hunters. We can't secure in the way we'd like with the resources at hand, the financial resources at hand. So, I don't know, five or six years ago, we started the discussion about ecosystem services. What is that? You know, let's quickly define that. Those are all the other uh, services, benefits that wetlands or grasslands can provide people. Uh, things like flood retention, water, flood water retention, storage, water quality improvements, uh, storm surge reduction, carbon sequestration, on and on and on, you get the idea. All of those things are things that we can quantify, but you can only quantify them, meaning how much, you know, for instance, how, how much is the water improved or, or how much carbon is by a prairie wetland. Those things can only be learned through the, through the planning and execution of really uh, robust science. Uh, just like we, we define our conservation treatments on landscapes for waterfowl, well, what would be a comparable conservation treatment to a landscape that might result in improved water quality? Now, duck hunters going, well, water quality, well, you guys are kind of drifting. <laughs> well, no, we're not, actually, because water quality is really important to a large segment of the population, now, whether you're in Canada, the United States, or Mexico. Uh, this It's a fundamental uh, quality of life issue for us. You know, nobody wants polluted streams and lakes and wetlands. Uh, we have to have secure drinking water supplies, all those kinds of things. Wetlands help with that. And we know they do. And now we have on staff scientists in Canada and the U.S. and Mexico who can quantify that using similar adaptive approaches. Uh, you know, you, you plan it, you implement it, you evaluate it, and you learn about it. And so we can tell you pretty specifically, or we'll be able to as we execute down the road, very specifically what our conservation treatments that were designed for waterfowl also provide in terms of water quality improvement, uh, flood storage, carbon sequestration. Now, why do we care? Well, those ecosystem services become valuable to, when we talked about maybe the agricultural industry, uh, to producers, to uh, corporations who can bring to bear resources 
to help us do conservation. And they might provide resources to us because they're interested in the water quality benefits. But the reality is that many of the treatments are on landscapes. Their funding uh, would be those that we would do anyway for waterfowl. So there's this mesh where we can bring in a whole new array of partners and potential funding sources based on science. Uh, the science in this, with uh, with respect to ecosystem services in this case, and that we hope, at least we're we're planning on, is going to enable us to do more work at bigger scales. More work at bigger scales hopefully leads to more secure waterfowl populations. Um, and it's something again that you know you don't ever stop doing. And some treatments are perpetual. You know we can sometimes buy land and protect it in perpetuity, but, but the reality is most of what we do is on working lands that we'll never own. And so we have to work with producers doing that where maybe they get some some financial reward for or incentive for doing water quality benefits in addition to waterfowl benefits. Starts to drive this machine, lets us operate at bigger scales. That's that's the thought process that we went through, uh, the business model that we're honestly still developing. If you want to know the truth, and, and I say it like we're still like I'm still here doing it. Um, you all are still doing it, and will be for a while. And I think it is our best opportunity to enable us to do waterfowl conservation, waterfowl habitat conservation faster and at larger scales in the face of looming, challenging threats that would otherwise erode that habitat base. Thank you for that, Tom. We're going to miss you around here or around headquarters. I also, I did want, however, to let people know that you're not going to be completely riding off into the sunset, never to be seen again here within the Ducks Unlimited Enterprise. We're going to, uh, we're going to lean on you. I can just tell you this. We're going to lean on you for some content as a guest on some future episodes of the podcast. So you're not totally uh, uh, out of our hair or we're not totally out of, out of yours is probably... <laughs> Probably the way to say it, <laughs> but uh, I just wanted to uh, wanted to end here by by saying thank you for your 29 years of service, for your mentorship of of me and supervision of of me through the years, and and all the things that I've learned. And and again, continue to I look forward to continuing to work with you here over the next uh, little while. I know we're gonna uh, you're you're too valuable to let just uh, right off into the sunset there, as I described. We're going to find a few a few, dis- a few additional things for you to work on. So thank you, Tom. Thank you, Mike. I just have to say it's been a wonderful, wonderful 29 years. I cannot think of a better organization uh, to be employed by. And I have loved pretty much every job I ever had with Duck Summit. Um Thanks to all of our supporters out there who make our work possible and by doing that also make jobs like I had possible. Um, it's important and I think it's one of the most rewarding things you can do is to try to leave the place a little better than you found it. And when I say that, I mean, of course, the landscapes that we all cherish and the birds that we cherish. So I appreciate your comments and thank you both for the opportunity to be on the show. Like Mike said, I won't be going away completely. I'll maybe show up on this podcast every now and then. You might see a magazine article. And got a few other things that you won't see that I'll be involved in, sort of 
more under the radar in the business sense, but still, still things I'll be engaged in. So I'm looking forward to that. And maybe a little more time in the duck blind and a little more time in dog training and a little more time in my fishing boat. Thank you for that, Tom. Here, I'm going to transition back to Chris. We're going to talk about a few other things. Uh, what, I, what I want to do here first is note that, uh, or I guess, bring attention to our new chief scientist, Dr. Steve Adair. Folks, listeners of the podcast would have heard from him once or twice, I think once before on an earlier episode where we talked about what he was doing in his previous position, but now he's our, our new chief scientist. And we will work to get Dr. Adair on an episode next season. Uh, one of the upcoming seasons to you know to introduce him again to you and his new in his new role. So with that, I want to uh, toss it back to Chris here and and get him to talk about what's next for the Ducks Unlimited podcast. We had an exciting season this you know the season three, but uh, any kind of recap for this season and then what's on uh, what's on tap for us going forward, Chris. Yeah, I think, um, you know, anyone who is listening to this podcast or any of our other ones, I, you know, I recommend going back into even season one, season two, and even this season three, where we produced um, nearly 100 episodes uh, just in season three. And, and there's a lot of really good information out there. And that it really spans the entire perspective of uh, waterfowl, waterfowl habitat, uh, waterfowl management. Mike did a really great series on the harvest management. Um, and it's like a 13 or 16 part series that you can really get into, um, the science and the decisions behind how some of these harvest management decisions are made, um, really opens people's eyes. And I think, uh, you know, I've even had a lot of comments that people really like them because they didn't know about things like even the point system or, you know, how the early days of management, uh, you know, really began. Um, so I would recommend all of our listeners do that, you know, check them all out. We are going to kick off season four in on May 1st. So it's going to be our summer season. We'll go from May through June. We're going to kick off. It's going to be a lot of off season topics, you know, retriever training, um, shotgunning, you know, definitely some gear information. Mike will probably have some uh, new and, and exciting uh, episodes to bring to the table from the science perspective. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're excited to kick that off. And, and just as far as I'm concerned today was, you know, one of the better conversations that we've had on the DU podcast, and we really kind of recapped the season. We talked about, uh, you know, Tom's history. And I know, Tom, just, you know, I know you're probably the one thing you're probably most excited about is you're not going to have to sit through that magazine planning meeting anymore, <laughs> uh, which I think has been passed on to uh, to Dr. Brazier himself uh, now, if, if I'm not mistaken. If that's the case, I'm not aware of it. So you may be breaking news here or else we need to corroborate that here after the fact. <laughs> well, somebody's <laughs> going to have to deal with it. And I, I just want to go before we close out here. I just want to let let you know, Tom, I was always a appreciated um, your very direct uh, attitude towards the magazine meeting. As some people may not know, we meet in the spring, we plan out the magazine, all the editors get together, we plan out the magazine for the next year. And people come to the table with all these wild ideas. And I, for one, happen to be someone who comes to the table with wild ideas. And I remember the <laughs> first time Tom sitting in there and I come up with this, all right, we're going to do this and this and this, and we can do this. And, and my boss, Matt Young says, well, what do you think, Tom? And Tom's just like, no, 
that's that's just not a good idea. And I was like, okay, all right, we'll start from scratch. So uh, just to let you know, you didn't hurt my feelings. I'm pretty thick skinned and, and I always appreciated and, and very much respected your opinion on everything that we did. So, and that's why, and that's why he started the podcast so that he wouldn't have anybody to tell him no. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. We could ramble on here. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Um, Mike, Tom, this has been great. Thanks for coming on. I'm sure everyone else out there really appreciated this conversation. Thanks, Chris. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Chris. And I also just wanted to take a moment here to say thank you, a huge thank you to all of the guests. I don't even know how many it is. It's maybe close to 100, I would imagine, if we did over 100 episodes. Uh, The podcast would not be what it is without them. They are the ones that bring the information to this, uh, to our listeners. They are the ones that commit their time. And many of them actually do a great deal of research on these topics before we get them on. So a huge thank you to all of our guests. We are are very grateful uh, to your participation in this. Absolutely, Mike. I'd like to thank my co-host, Dr. Mike Brazier, the line in the sand for the DU podcast from a science perspective for joining me today. I'd like to thank Dr. Tom Mormon, the former chief scientist of Ducks Unlimited for joining us today. I'd like to thank Clay Baird, the producer of Ducks Unlimited podcast for putting up with us and our edits and, and really putting a great package together to send out to you, the listener. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us on the DU podcast and supporting wetlands conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.